2 Corinthians 12, we'll read the first 10 verses together. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to come to you, grateful to address you as Father. God, we recognize that while we have this privilege as children, we do come to one who is infinitely above us, incomprehensible, solitary in your glory. God, we bow before you even as we call you Father. We're grateful to have this access to you through Jesus Christ. Grateful to be um, accepted as, as not just friends, but family members of the King. God, we praise you for the kindnesses that you've shown to us through Jesus. We thank you for not just only salvation, God, we do praise you for that, but God, that you continue to provide for your children, that you're good to us every day. God, as we uh, have seen in recent Sundays, Lord, descriptions of your ongoing um, dealings with us, the sufficiency of Christ for the disciple, we praise you, God, for providing so well for a people who are so needy. God, our need is great, greater than we probably can comprehend. But God, however great it is, your provision is so much greater. And so we don't want to come as, we come as beggars who are needy, but God, we don't come as those who have not found a good supply. We don't come as those who have not been provided for. We don't come to beg of 
one who is reticent to give to us. But God, we come to one whose heart and whose hands are open to us, who has given us Christ. And with him, having given us him, what else would you withhold? What good thing would you keep from us? So God, we ask you to continue to supply what we need. Our daily bread, but God, also spiritual bread. God, feed us, teach us, lead us, make us happy to follow Christ wherever He leads. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this first part of chapter 12, we are continuing a section that began in chapter 11 where Paul makes some boast. And you remember a good portion of chapter 11 is given to reasons why he feels like he has to do this, although he doesn't want to. And his actual boast, his foolish boasting, is very short, and then he turns back to his weaknesses. In the beginning of chapter 12, he again is kind of compelled to say some things that he doesn't want to say, but then he runs back to his weaknesses, and he makes his boast there. And if you could kind of boil everything he says down here and apply it to us, I think you could put it in this kind of statement. The believer, you and I, should be content with the grace of Christ. Paul is content, and we should be. Well, let's look at this. And I'd point you first to see that while Paul, that, that Paul did experience a vision or a revelation that he was not permitted to describe in detail or, or to talk much about. We see this in verses 1 through 4, and I'll read those again. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul had experienced other visions that he did share with other people. But I think that if you look at them, it's because other people needed to know information that he was, he was given. So, for instance, uh, let's look at a few in the book of Acts. If you want to turn back to Acts chapter 9, verse 12. This is actually the Lord appearing to Ananias after Paul's conversion. And the Lord tells Ananias in verse 12 that Paul has seen a vision. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Paul has seen this in a vision. Paul has that vision. Now Ananias knows about it. But he needs to know about it. And the Lord is the one who tells him about this. In chapter 16... Verses 9 and 10. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Lord appears to Paul and he has this vision. But Paul's not by himself. He's not traveling alone. 
At this point, he's traveling with Silas. He and Barnabas have parted company. And you'll also notice that uh, the language here is we. There are several sections in the book of Acts that are called we sections. And it's when Luke is traveling with them. So Luke and Silas are with him. And if suddenly they're changing their travel plans, they're going to want to know why. And Paul tells them. Luke obviously knows about the vision. He writes about it. So I could give you others, but I'm not going to read all these. There are a number of places like that where because other people need to know the information, he tells them. Or someone else, you know, the Lord relays it to them also because they need to know. Here, whatever vision it is that Paul has is not something that anyone else needed to know. God doesn't share it with anyone else. And not only does God not share it with anyone else, God tells Paul, don't utter it. Don't say it. He's not permitted to tell other people. Now, this vision or revelation that he has, he says, occurred 14 years ago. This would have been before his first missionary journey. As far as we know, this is the first time he's ever made any mention of it. It's the only recorded instance of it. And so it's not something that he, you know, he just doesn't talk about it. He feels compelled to talk about it now because of the false teachers who evidently are bragging about the visions they have. And this is a test that they're putting before the Corinthians of what a real apostle is like. And you know, maybe they even say they have new information that the Corinthians need. And so they need to listen to them, not to Paul, because whatever, you know, maybe they've heard Paul tell about uh, his conversion experience and that vision, but that, that's kind of old news. That happened way back then. Years have passed. We've got new information. You need to hear from us. But Paul, compelled to tell about this, now just mentions it. In this particular vision, in verse 2, Paul states that he was caught up to the third heaven. And in verse 4, he also identifies this place as paradise. The two descriptions used together serve to highlight the fact that Paul was brought before God in heaven. He is in the presence of Christ, not here on the earth. Exactly what shape that took, he's not clear. He's not exactly sure whether this was an out-of-body experience or whether he was taken bodily to heaven like Enoch or Elijah. You remember in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11 says of Enoch, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So obviously, if Paul was taken up bodily like that, he came back. But Paul's not sure whether it was out of body or bodily taken to heaven. But he is sure that he saw heavenly things and things that he heard and saw were, were inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Two different descriptions there. He speaks of inexpressible words. Some people have taken that to mean that um, they were unintelligible. You, you know, things, he heard things that he couldn't speak. I don't think he means that. It's not that what he heard he didn't understand as much as he didn't... I think the idea of inexpressible here is more along the lines of ineffable. Which may also be a word that, that you don't know other than we sing it in a song. So you should at least know what it is. But ineffability is the quality of something that 
surpasses the capacity of language to describe. He saw and heard things that would be very hard to relate, inexpressible. We see something like this in Revelation chapter 1. If you want to look there very quickly. The Apostle John sees the risen Lord. And obviously he is led by the Holy Spirit to write about it. But the words he uses are metaphors. Similes. It was like this. So he writes in Revelation 1 verse 13. In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. Clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. And girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool. Like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. When it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. He uses descriptive language to try to describe what he has seen. But surely what he has seen is beyond you know, how do you describe something so glorious? Well, you, you do your best with words that other people can kind of relate to. Or another passage that is pretty familiar to people is an Ezekiel one. Ezekiel looks and he says in verse 5, and I'm just going to read a few of these verses. It goes on and you can keep reading later if you want. But he says, within it there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. And he goes on and talks about how it's like they traveled on wheels and so he's describing something that's hard to describe. He's ex- describing something that we can't directly relate to because we didn't see it. It'd be kind of like, kind of like going to a, a third world country, maybe even not even that, some, out in the bush, you know, to some place where they, they have not communicated with civilization before. And you are able to communicate with them. You learn their language. And... These are people that live in huts and dirt floors and what they eat today is what they hunt and kill today. And you try to describe to them shopping at Walmart. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, they have no frame of reference. What words do you use to describe a supply system that keeps shelves supplied and you don't go kill it, you take money and, and buy it. And they have no frame of reference. So I, I think that's what he means But here by inexpressible. I saw things that... I, I can't express to you. They're, they're ineffable. They, words don't convey them. I don't have the capacity to say them to you in a way that, that you would understand. But more than that, if I had the words to explain it, I don't have permission. They were words a man's not permitted to speak. Why is that? I think that It is because whatever Paul saw was for Paul. It was not for us. If God intended it for us, he would have told Paul to tell us about it or he would show it to us. But it wasn't for us. In the wisdom of God, Paul needed to see this and you and I do not. 
And so he mentions it just enough to say, hey, I've, I've had revelations, visions. I was taken up, caught up to heaven. But that's about all I can say about that. So we don't need to know that. We don't need to know more than that. However, he goes on and he does express this idea. And it is this, that visions and revelations are not worth boasting about. As in chapter 11, where he's so hesitant to to boast about his, his heritage. You know, those two, three verses, he spends 19, 20 verses telling us, All the reasons why he feels compelled to say, I really am a Hebrew and an Israelite and a child of Abraham. He's uncomfortable here also. He uses different words here, but he speaks kind of in the third person. In verse 2, I know a man. Such a man. Verse 3, I know how such a man. That's kind of awkward language, isn't it? He's hesitant to say, it was me. But it's obvious that it was him because in verse 6, after saying, I don't want to boast about that, he says, if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish for I'll be speaking the truth. And then in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, he's given a thorn in the flesh. He's obviously talking about himself. But he will not boast about it. He says, in fact, that it is not profitable to talk about this. Verse 1, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations. The ESV puts not profitable with, with what goes immediately next. It's not profitable to talk about these visions and revelations. That's not a direct quote. But, you know, the idea is... I'm going to talk about this because it's necessary, because of the false teachers, but it's not really profitable. And he will not boast about it, though in verse 1, boasting is necessary. In verse 5, he says, on behalf of such a man, I'll boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. This isn't worth talking about. It's not profitable. I'm not going to boast about this. How different Paul was from the false teachers. They boasted about it. They are making a a big to-do about what they've seen and experienced. And Paul says, this isn't worth talking about. And how different from so many living today. Paul is just, without giving much details, tells us he was caught up into the heavens. And he doesn't write a book about it. Heaven's for real. Paul could have beat them to the punch. But he doesn't write the book. He doesn't hit the conference circuit. And have people coming to hear him teach them about the realities of heaven. It's not necessary. It's not profitable. It would not benefit you for me to talk about that. If it helped you and I were permitted, I'd tell you. But it's not profitable. And while Luke mentions in the book of Acts various visions that Paul has, Paul does not mention them in any of his epistles other than occasional uh, uh, mentions of, of his conversion experience. But 
if it was helpful to the church, you would think that the epistles written to the churches would be full of references to the various visions and experiences and revelations that he has been given by God. Let me tell you what God showed me in the third heaven. He never says that because it does not build up the church. It's not profitable. If Paul's purpose was to puff up Paul, then this might be good stuff, but that wasn't his purpose. Not only was it not his purpose, but because he did love the church and because he did not hardly ever talk about this, then I think we must conclude that these kinds of mystical experiences cannot be the measure of a minister or the measure of a ministry or the measure of any individual spiritual maturity. If you talk about experiences as a measure of your maturity, I don't think that it's a very convincing measure. And that leads us to the next thing, which is your words and conduct are of greater evidentiary value that you walk with the Lord than visions and revelations are. They are greater evidence, greater fruit, your words and your life than are Mystical experiences. Verse 5 and 6. Again he says. On behalf of such a man. I will boast. But on my own behalf. I will not boast. Except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast. I will not be foolish. For I'll be speaking the truth. That really happened. But. I refrain from this. So that no one will credit me. With more than he sees in me. Or hears from me. Why is that? Why are mystical experiences not a good measure? Let me give you a few reasons. One, because not every spirit is from God. And there are people who would boast of mystical experiences, but the spirit wasn't God. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not every spirit, not every experience is from God, even if the experience is in the name of God. Let me give you an Old Testament example. Book of Exodus. Moses goes up onto the mountain. Now, what's happening down at the bottom? They build a golden calf. The people are worshiping it, and they name the calf God. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And they're worshiping in the name of God, this idol that they've named God. But it's not God. This is not anything of any value. It is sinful. God is angered. Not every spirit is from God. Not every experience is from God. Another, second, not every experience is verifiable. If it's a personal experience, not only is it highly subjective, but there's no way for anyone else to know if it really occurred or not. And while you, being an honest person, would be telling the truth, no doubt, the false teachers in Corinth were not. 
And as they talk about their experiences and tell of the revelations they've received, how can anyone verify it one way or the other? It's easy to say. It's impossible to verify. We don't live in Corinth, but the same thing still goes on. Different degree maybe, but it still goes on. How easy it is to say, the Lord told me. And maybe what you mean is I was reading the Bible and I saw this and you know, God told me. But if what you mean is I heard a voice from heaven or I had this vision. Well, test the spirits. Easy to say, hard to verify. Or I had a dream. I saw a vision. And people, so many people are so enamored with that, both being able to say it and others hearing that you had that kind of experience. Wow. Paul's not impressed. And he wouldn't have us to be impressed either. Third, it's not every spirit is from God, not every experience is verifiable, which makes him suspect. And third, Personal experiences are not profitable for the body, the church. And if they're not profitable for the body, Paul tells us they're not worth talking about in the body. Again, verse 4, I'm not permitted to speak this. Verse 6, what I want you to talk about or, or judge me by, credit me with, is what you see in me and hear from me. Not revelations, not visions. It's not profitable to you. And so I'm not talking about them. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy... And know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and do not have love, I'm nothing. Well, one way we could define love as expressed toward the church is saying things that are helpful to them, not things that are of no profit to them. You can see love kind of demonstrated in Paul in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians verse 7, where he speaks of humbling himself so that you might be exalted. This could be another expression of that. I don't talk about that so that you may be exalted. I want to build you up. And this isn't profitable. How many people talking about their experiences, I saw this, aren't really exalting Christ as much as self. As they bring attention to themselves and what they saw, heard, or experienced. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 18 and 19, Paul said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. It wouldn't be profitable for you, the body, for me to talk that way. It's profitable, profitable for you to hear words that you understand. So I'm going to speak that way. I'm not permitted to speak these words. They're inexpressible. They're ineffable. I'm not talking about that. 
Let me give you something that's profitable for you. And so again, in verse 6 of chapter 12 here, Paul does not talk this way, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. I think part of it too is Paul really doesn't want people to esteem him more highly than he should be esteemed. I had this vision in verse 70 speaks of it being surpassingly great. But the glory of all that is God's. It's not Paul's. I don't want you to credit me with more than I should be credited with. What you should look at and what you should judge is what I say and what I do. The truth communicated a life that matches. There is evidence. Remember, too, this is not from somebody who speaks from an absence of these kinds of experiences. Paul's had visions. He's performed miracles. He has raised the dead. God raised the dead. You know what I'm saying? It's not like he's never had these, and so he's telling you they're not worth anything. He's done these things. He's had the experiences, and he's telling you that's not where it's at. It's not profitable talk. So what do we do? We listen to a person's words. Do they speak the truth of God? Is there a consistency in their words? And then we watch their life. Is there a consistency there also? Not perfect, but is there a consistency? Do words and life match? We need to move on. God not only gives visions, He also gives weakness. Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. God has given him this surpassingly great revelation, vision. God has also given him this thorn in the flesh. There's a lot of conjecture about exactly what this thorn in the flesh might be. The short answer is we don't have a clue. (laughs) We don't know. We're not told. In one sense, that might be a good thing, though, because it means that, you know, various weaknesses that we experience can also kind of fit this. It applies perhaps more widely. Whatever it is, it is described here as a messenger of Satan to torment me. Satan delights in tormenting God's children, and that's his purpose here, to torment me. And yet there's obviously more at play here. It's not just that Satan is tormenting me. Paul speaks in verse 7 of this this thorn being given to me. The language there is what is sometimes called a divine passive. And and many theologians believe the idea here is God gave this to me. And certainly God allowed this to happen. God has allowed this thorn to to be given to me, to, to this messenger of Satan to torment me, and with a purpose. Satan's torment is to uh, Satan's purpose is to torment me, but God has another purpose, a greater purpose, and it's not the good of Paul's physical health or that he be pain free and trouble free, but it's the good of his soul and his usefulness to the church. Twice here. 
He tells us that God has done this so that he would not exalt himself. So that he wouldn't be conceited. What he saw was so great that there would be a temptation to think too highly of himself. And so as God in kindness shows him this vision, God also in kindness sends the messenger of Satan to keep him humble so that he would not exalt himself. The revelation was so great that Paul needed this to provide ongoing humbling. So God gave it to him. And Paul's weakness, this this thorn, which the false apostles loathed, Paul also kind of speaks of as, as an evidence of the superiority of the revelation that God gave to him. It was so great to keep me humble, God had to give me this weakness. The uh, false teachers, boasting of their visions, would not also boast of weakness at all. They despised it. But Paul's revelation, surpassingly great, is so great, God also has to make sure he stays humble after seeing it. This whole idea that God would give this to him for his good is a real rebuke to anyone who believes that sickness or poverty or any other kind of suffering is necessarily an evidence of the absence of God's favor. The whole health and wealth kind of crowd Does God show favor to Paul? Yes. Does God allow Paul to suffer? Yes. So Paul has this surpassingly great revelation or vision caught up into heaven. And God gave Paul an ongoing weakness following the vision. Paul refused to boast about the vision. Not profitable. But he does boast in the weakness. Verse 5. The only boasting I'm going to do on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. But why? How you respond to weakening situations does tell more about your spiritual walk than mystical experiences. So if how you talk and how you live is better evidence of your your life with Christ, your walk with God, than those kinds of revelations, then these kinds of weaknesses provide an opportunity for you to respond with word and deed and demonstrate what you believe. And so Paul responds in verses 9 and 10, most gladly, therefore I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Verse 10, I am well content. What a strange response to situations that that make you weak or that demonstrate 
your weaknesses. And yet the response is telling. Why does Paul boast about his weaknesses? Is he a masochist? Does he find some weird twisted delight in suffering? Well, no, not at all. In fact, he says in verse 6, I prayed three times. I implored God, please take it away. It wasn't pleasant. Please remove it. So he didn't enjoy the pain. And since he didn't enjoy the pain, he didn't go around looking for pain or for situations that made him feel his weakness. No, God gave him the thorn. A messenger of Satan. God leads him into situations where Paul is made to feel his weakness. There's no value in the endurance of hardships or indignities in themselves. The value is, is what God brings to it. We'll get there in just a second. While, I'm going to give you some phrases. While these phrases may have some earthly value, they have no spiritual value. So if we're trying to apply them to spiritual life, they're worthless. Okay? Have you ever heard the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Pain. Is weakness leaving the body? Well, if you're exercising, that might keep you going a little bit longer. Or one that I've heard so many times and said a few times, rub some dirt on it, right? Um, They may have some earthly value, but they don't have any spiritual value. The, The value is not in the suffering itself. It's not in the weakness. When Paul says, I'm boasting in my weakness, he's not bragging about how weak he is because he enjoys being weak. But it's because of what God does through the weakness. That's the point. He's content about his situation because God reveals himself to his child who's made to feel weakness. And God reveals himself to others in the way he sustains his child in his weakness. And this is something worth boasting about. When Paul looks at how God sustains him, When God looks at the grace of Christ that comes to him and is sufficient for him. At the power of Christ that rests on him and works through him in these weakening situations. Paul looks at that and with that he can say, most gladly I'll boast. With this, I'm content. Pain, yeah, it's still painful, weak. I am weak, yes. But look at what God is doing through that. Paul was thrilled with what God was doing Through his weakness for Christ's sake. So in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Verse 10. When I'm weak. Then I'm strong. In verse 9. Again at the end. He speaks of the power of Christ. Dwelling in me. I want to pause there just a second. The word dwell. Is the word that we get sanctuary. Or tabernacle from. It's the same word that is used in John 1.14 where we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came and dwelt with us. 
He, he rested with us. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 40, they build the tabernacle and the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in a sense, it rested there among God's people. And Paul says here that in his weakness, in his responses to his weakness, in his trusting God in his weakness, but in the weakness, that's a place where the power of Christ comes and rests. The tabernacle's there. That is something worth boasting about. That's why he can say most gladly. Yes, with this I'm well content. And when he boasts here, there's no shyness here. There's no hesitancy here. There's no reticence and no playing the fool like he talks about in chapter 11 when he talks about his pedigree. Christ is present in our weakness and in the situations that make us feel weak and His power shines through as we trust Him. If that's true, then I think it's helpful to understand a bit of what's meant by weakness here or suffering. While God is certainly gracious to us all the time, the weakness that Paul speaks of here is not the, the suffering that comes because you make a sinful choice. And you pay the consequences. Or even just doing something dumb. But he helps define it a bit in verse 10. I'm well content with weaknesses. And then he helps to explain that. With insults. With distresses. With persecutions. With difficulties. For Christ's sake. For Christ's sake could, I believe, both be I'm suffering this for Christ's sake or, how, or describe how he suffers it. But it's there in those situations, that, those kinds of weakening situations where his grace is sufficient for you. And this has been Paul's refrain throughout the, apostle, uh, the, the epistle. <laughs> in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he said... We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In chapter 2 and verse 14, he speaks about how God leads him in triumph in Christ and I've told you how I understand that to be Christ's triumph as Paul is led into these difficult situations and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. In chapter 4, verses 7 and following, he speaks of having this, this gospel treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Nobody's impressed with the earthen vessel. We, he says, are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body 
the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Again and again, he tells us about the situations he finds himself in that makes him feel his weakness. And he rejoices through the weaknesses, not because he's glad to be weak, but because God shows his strength through the weaknesses. And now he tells us his boast in weakness is a glad one. Because it's there that the power of Christ rests upon him. Are you content with the grace that Christ gives to sustain you? So often when things happen, when, when you know, situations come that, that make us feel weak and disrupt our lives, our first thought, much like Paul, is to pray, God, remove it. Fix it. I want to go back to normal. God did answer Paul. And while he didn't remove it, his answer was full of grace. I'm not going to remove it, but my grace is sufficient for you. And it was the good answer that Paul needed. And the wisdom of God and the kindness of God, that's what Paul needed. But are you content? With the grace that God gives you to sustain you. We can think about grace in days gone by. In hard situations. And look back and praise God for that. I'm glad that God sustained me that way then. We can think about future grace. And maybe even you know, develop situations in our mind. And how God might deal with us then. And be grateful for that. But what about today? The life that you live now. The troubles that you endure now. If they've come to you providentially from the hand of a good and wise God. Are you grateful today and well content today with the grace that he has given to sustain you? Or do you grumble in your weakness? Chafe. 
If you believe that God is not sovereign or that he's not good, then you might be well off to chafe. (laughs) Try to fix it. But if he is a good and wise heavenly father, then rejoice. There might be things that need to be addressed. Things you can do. Certainly you can pray. But when God makes it clear, this is what I have for you. Then like Paul, you should be able to say most gladly, I'll boast. I am well content with the grace that he's given to me.